everyone, wherever you're listening from, my name is Phil Dye and you're listening to Marking the Roll, a podcast for teachers uh, and educators and parents and students, anyone really interested in education. Today's topic is the violence being experienced by principals and by teachers and how that has really escalated in the last 10 years. But before we get into that, I'd like to thank the donors and the subscribers to Marking the Roll that have done so via Substack. Um, It really does help us out. It really helps pay our bills and keep this podcast going. And as is the agreement, we don't say the names of anyone who's made a donation or subscribed. Um, We don't do that. Um, But you'll know who I'm talking about. Thank you so much for your donation or your subscription. Now, this whole issue of um, violence towards principals and teachers. Now, I had certain theories as to why this was, and one of them was that parents have just lost their way in an attempt to be more friends with their kids rather than a parent who has rules and expectations and mentors their child. Um, I know about 20 years ago there was this push to be friends with your kids. And when you're friends, of course, you can't have an argument and disagree with them. And maybe that has let kids go a little bit off the rails. Another theory is that the education systems in all states and nearly in all Western societies has become so obsessed with inclusion that kids who um, are disruptive, perhaps aggressive, um, and who interrupt the learning of others are being allowed into mainstream classes. Some of this is not their fault because of their disability, but it really does raise the issue whether there should be more special settings for those students. Um, And also in in education, kids who couldn't do the right thing sometimes were excused because they were just expressing themselves. That's not necessarily right. Yes, some kids may be expressing themselves because they've got difficulties. Um, Sometimes they just have to learn what a rule is. And sometimes the kids are expressing themselves because uh, their home life is a disaster, um, because uh, they're being victims of childhood abuse, of of poor parenting, um, of drug abuse in the home. And the third thing is that the rights of a minority of children and a minority of parents has been elevated um, above the rights of the majority of kids and families. Um, So the kids and families, the majority, we want a safe and secure environment for the kids at school. Um, And education departments have become scared to act against the parents who just really shouldn't be parents or need more education in being a parent. Um, And while removing kids from dysfunctional or dangerous family homes should be a, a last resort, really, It should happen for the protection of kids, whether they be black or white. In some ways, it seems that our democracy is no longer a democracy. It's a system run by lots and lots of different minority groups. Now, I know that there's many teachers out there who haven't experienced violence, 
um, and the school is a very safe place to be, and that's that's absolutely fantastic. But this topic is important because it's leading to many teachers leaving the profession. And on this topic, I've spoken to Craig Peterson. Craig is the president of the Secondary Principals Council in New South Wales, um, but he is relevant to all states. Um, and he had some pretty interesting things to say. And I began the interview by asking him to tell us his teaching background. Started my teaching career as a, an English and history teacher at a little place called Billabong High School uh, down in the Riverina, halfway between Albury and Wagga. I was um, there for, for about six years um, before picking up my only head teacher's role. I was the head teacher of English at uh, Finlay High School uh, before moving to Coonabarabran High School as the deputy principal. Uh, then Forbes High School as, as, as my first principalship before moving on to Denison College of Secondary Education in Bathurst. That's a multi-campus uh, secondary college with about 2,000 students across two sites. And I've been the president of the New South Wales Secondary Principals Council since 2019. So what can you tell us about the, the violence being experienced by principals? We've seen a startling increase in threats of violence and, and other what we might broadly call unacceptable behaviours uh, in, in the last decade in particular. There's always been an element of this in schools to varying degrees, depending on the context and, and, and the location. But uh, what we've seen documented in the uh, Australian Catholic University's Principal Occupational Health and Wellbeing Survey since 2011 uh, is a steady increase in that uh, those threats of violence and in actual violence towards teachers and and principals. The 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 area of interest that we've got as a as the secondary principals council is of course our, our principals of schools with secondary enrolments um, and obviously Phil Riley and the team at ACU are, are picking up around principal health and, and wellbeing. But what we see in the principal's office is more broadly replicated across our classrooms. So we've got our, our physical violence is now sitting up at 55, 54% of respondents in the last survey identified they'd experienced physical violence. And, and from those, um, a significant amount of that was um, from... Um, from parents, um, 10% of school leaders experience physical violence from parents and almost 42% from students. And, and that prevalence there, is, that's 11 times higher than the general population experiences. Look, that's quite amazing. When I was teaching 20 years ago, I never experienced any uh, threats or any violence from students or, of, or from parents. Um, and I taught in some, some pretty pretty tough schools what do you think has caused this shift? Look, there's many factors at play here, and this is part of the problem. Uh, it, it, there's no one single thing driving this behaviour. And some of it is particular to schools. Some of it is more broadly replicated across other elements of society. So as our society becomes increasingly fragmented and, and in some cases, to be quite honest, dysfunctional, we see these behaviours played out in schools. We see a breakdown in the traditional supports uh, available in communities. So where families may once have had the extended 
family to draw upon, aunts, uncles, grandparents, uh, and, and the like. We've now got uh, uh, increasingly our nuclear family uh, without those extended supports, and and usually with both parents uh, needing to work because of the pressures on uh, cost of living. But at the same time as we've got that decreased capacity of extended families to support parents, we've also got a decreased capacity of some of our community institutions, such as the church or various sports and social clubs. Yeah, but Craig, there must be a little bit more to it than just the reduction of extended family and and maybe church influence. That diminution is then exacerbated by uh, the increase in community violence and increasing crime, uh, the normalisation of violence through through media, through uh, even through sport, through the games that our students and our young people play online, and this sense that um, we resolve conflict through conflict, not through discussion or negotiation or mediation. And do you think that's entirely though through through video games and social media, um, or is there been something lacking in 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 parenting and and teaching kids? how that they should, you know, liaise and communicate with others? Oh, absolutely it is. Absolutely. And, and if you go back a, a previous generation, there were concerns around some of the cartoons that, uh, you know, people were watching on TV. So it's not just around movies. It's not around video games. It's not just around social media. But all these things, I believe, do exacerbate it. Uh, we do have cases, and I've had parents in my office who've told their children in, in front of me, if so-and-so does that to you, punch him. Uh, so the parents are advocating for, for their children and encouraging them, in some cases, to engage in physical violence. But um, there is this feeling in some areas that teachers uh, are there to be disobeyed and um, the kids can do whatever they like. They can just ignore the teacher. Uh, we, you know, we have many cases where parents will tell students that they don't have to do what the teacher says. And so you, along with this normalisation of conflict and violence, we then get in some cases, and I've got to stress that this is only in some cases, the active encouragement from parents or other significant family members that violence or aggressive behaviour is the way that we, we resolve conflict. We either intimidate the, uh, the person that we're in conflict with to the point where they don't want to engage with us and they'll simply give in to our demands, or if that doesn't work, we will physically assault them. And I guess it doesn't help matters when you see our Prime Minister, um, Anthony Albanese, mixing with John Ibrahim at the wedding of uh, Kyle Sanderlands. For those overseas, John Ibrahim as a nightclub owner, big reputation, bit of a reputation as a thug. Um, and uh, here's our Prime Minister mixing with him. Craig, what do you do in this situation when when that happens? And who do you go to? Is the, is the police the first port of call? Uh, police aren't necessarily the first port of call, but uh, certainly if the situation warrants it, uh, we encourage our members, our principals, to ring triple O. Uh, and, and certainly some of the deployed police officers that we've got working within the Department of Education will encourage that. Uh, our first and foremost consideration is the safety of the students and staff in our schools and we should not and we will not uh, allow that, that to be threatened so certainly the police is a resource we've got to understand too uh, phil that in many of our locations the police are also under resourced and depending on the level of 
crime, violence, uh, dysfunction in, in their local area commands, that will affect their ability to respond as well. Part of the answer has to be around parents and schools working together on a clearly articulated, consistently applied set of expectations with clear consequences and then a consistent follow-through on those consequences because in my experience, where we get that collaboration working, where principals, teachers, students, parents all know what the expectations are and where people follow through consistently, most people, most of the time, will do the right thing. But isn't it hard now for accountability to exist or to uh, for repercussions to exist because detention now is is a dirty word and um, the, the amount of suspensions a child can experience is what now a total of three isn't it in the year yes that's correct under the uh, changes to uh, what's broadly called our IERS that's inclusive engagement respectful schools some people refer to it as the behavior strategy but what we're talking about here specifically are the suspension procedures um, it is a, it's a three suspensions within a year without seeking the approval of a director. So it is possible, uh, but it does have some extra hoops that we have to go through uh, if, we need to, if we need to do that. Craig, the research last year, I think it was from the Sydney Morning Herald, um, said that 30% of all suspensions were from um, students with a disability um, and, and others similar. Um, doesn't this really skew the the statistics that when you get 30% coming from one segment, uh, maybe that segment isn't as well placed as it could be? Part of the issue that we've got is that there has been correctly an identification of an over-representation of some of our disadvantaged students in terms of suspension and 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 misbehaviour. So particularly we're talking about our Aboriginal students, students with disabilities, students from low SES backgrounds, and also students from our rural and remote schools. What we need to be providing for these students are additional resources, additional supports, and probably additional professional learning for some of our teachers and principals to make sure that we are catering for the needs of these disadvantaged groups. Unfortunately, what is also happening is that we are now looking at the perpetrators of aggression or misbehaviour as being victims of the system. We're, we're now looking at those aggressors as victims, but forgetting about the rights of the students or the staff members that they are impacting on and the fact that these people actually are victims as well and they need to be protected from that aggression or violence. Absolutely, and and several listeners, uh, this is in past um, episodes, who have, have said that um, it's the others in the class who suffer most from this. Sure, the principal suffers, the teacher suffers, but it's the others in the class. And if that uh, kid with the problem keeps getting away with it, um, it really makes the, the others say, oh, well, you know, what's the use? Yeah, that's, that's exactly right, Phil. And this is where we need to have the right balance between looking after the individual and also looking after the entire school. Uh, we need our classrooms 
every classroom and every school to be a safe, calm learning environment. We do need to be able to make adjustments and, and modifications in some cases for students who might have particular needs, but we need to we need to get the balance right. And I, I'm afraid at the moment that we simply don't. Uh, we need to be really looking at a more holistic approach uh, as a system of education around what are the right settings, what are the right resources, what are clear and consistent and well understood guidelines and where we can't manage a situation within a classroom or within a school, what are the resources that we can draw upon to meet the needs of that individual student for sure, but also to ensure that learning goes on in a productive calm and uh, enjoyable way for the rest of the students and the rest of our staff in that setting. You mentioned the word settings before, um, and it has been um, uh, an issue with <laughs> of mine, really, that a lot of kids with extreme disabilities shouldn't be in the mainstream setting, um, that they need special schools. There's There's a real case for that. Is that what you mean when you say that we should be analysing the settings? It's certainly part of what I mean. Uh, we do need to be careful that we don't exclude students from a mainstream setting too quickly or without need. But we also need to be able to ensure that every student has access to high quality education. And whether that's a student, uh, a mainstream student engaging really well with their school, or it's a student who is struggling for, for whatever reason, mental health issues, a disability, a level of disadvantage or dysfunction within their family, the, the causes can be quite complex. At the moment, I think the focus is, is, is too, too narrow and we're almost afraid to provide different settings or different um, different responses for different students because we, we, we're afraid of being seen to be discriminatory or, in fact, we are accused of being discriminatory where we do identify specific needs that might meet a particular child's needs at that point in time. That's right. It's Diversity is absolutely wonderful and it's great. But when um, the diversity or the inclusion doesn't actually suit that child, uh, and they can't learn in that environment, or it's affecting the learning of the other students in the classroom, then perhaps diversity needs to be tailored back a little bit. Now, doc Dr. Paul Kidson from Australian Catholic University blames the downturn in student and parent behaviour on the pandemic. Do you buy that? Not really. I think there um, are... There's certainly some concerns around the pandemic and its its impact. But as I said before, we've got that steadily increasing trend in violent behaviours at school since 2011. And it actually peaked around 2019 at 20, uh, at 45% before it uh, a slight downturn in 2020. And we put that down to the impact of the lockdown. Uh, firstly, we had a lot of students uh, right across the state who weren't at school for a period of time. And we also had an increased appreciation for the role of teachers and schools in supporting students and community. The return to school post-lockdown, however, has indicated an increase in antisocial behaviours, a lack of resilience in our children and our families, and uh, as I was saying before, an inability to resolve conflict and, and form some of those positive social relationships. Uh, and we're seeing that coming to the fore more and more in the post-pandemic environment. So there's an element there I don't think it's a key driver. No, I wouldn't have thought it was. 
But there is the thought that during the pandemic, the, the term cancelled came up with, you know, with cancel culture. And it, it seems that, that students and young people have uh, dumped the idea of debating, discussing and coming to an understanding. They simply reach for the emotional cancel button and they solve things that way rather than looking deeper into, into an issue. Look, had a message from a, a teacher. Um, I'll just play it to you. I have been punched whilst pregnant by a student. He swore and swung at me when I told him he needed to go to planning room, no longer called detention, because that's negative. I have been stabbed with a pencil, had things thrown at me and being sworn at is a normal occurrence. Schools have gotten so bad that we don't even bother calling our executive team because there is nothing they can do. If we were nurses, police, or anyone else there would be constant public attention trying to help. Most of these children come from bad homes and only need love, yes that's true. But there are no repercussions for these children and they just turn out like their parents. Teachers will continue to leave if something doesn't change. Of course, that teacher's voice and some of the details has been changed to protect her. Anonymity has been changed with artificial intelligence, as you probably noticed. Now, is is then there's no such thing as right and wrong, it would seem, and there's no such thing as a negative, like the the detention room. Is this sending the wrong message to students? Because we live in a society of rules that involves right and wrong. Absolutely. And whilst we want to encourage students as much as we can, while we don't want to label students unnecessarily, you're quite right, Phil. Part of our job as educators is not just to teach them around literacy and numeracy. It's not just around reading, writing and arithmetic. It's actually preparing them for the next stage of their lives. And a significant part of that is being able to be a functional citizen uh, contributing in a positive way to the broader society. Children need to know what the boundaries are. And if they're doing the wrong thing, they need to understand that it's the wrong thing. Why it's the wrong thing needs to be explained and what the consequences are of breaking that rule or that crossing that boundary might be needs to be consistent. And it needs to be realistic. And any punishments do need to be you know, in, in accordance with the severity of the transgression, obviously. Um, and, and I'm afraid that's, that is lacking. And what we know from research uh, around human behaviour is that uh, in really broad and simple terms, you'll get three types of people, and we see this in schools all the time. There's the people who will always do the right thing regardless of what's going on. That's a fairly small minority that sits you know, at the top end of a graph. We've got a group of people, similarly, very small group of people statistically, who will almost always do the wrong thing for whatever reason, um, you know, be it disability, be it a uh, mental health issue, whatever. It's very hard to get these people to comply. In the middle is the vast majority of, of people, in our case, students, mm. and they will watch and observe what is happening. And if the person, that group of small group of people who don't comply, who misbehave, who are violent, if this middle group of students perceives that they are getting away with it and there is no consequence, then their behaviour will swing that way. 
If, however, conversely, they see misbehaviour being dealt with, being consistently and and um, fairly treated, they can see that there's a consequence, in other words, they will tend to swing the other way towards doing the right thing, meeting the expectations, and particularly if there's some, you know, some inherent reward system in place that acknowledges good behaviour, mm. the majority of people will swing that way. This is where schools, where teachers have a very challenging line to tread because we need to be consistent. We need to clearly communicate a simple set of class or school rules. We need to be consistent and we need to make sure that our students and our parents understand what those rules are, what the consequences are, and we must be consistent because human nature, again, is to latch on to inconsistency. If I think I can get away with it, then I might take that chance. But if I know that Miss or Sir is always going to pull me up for that behaviour, then I'm likely to behave in the way that I'm expected. Marking the role is supported entirely through subscribers and donors. We are the only podcast for teachers in Australia that confronts the difficult topics in education, topics others won't touch. Your subscription will ensure we can keep looking at the big issues. The cost of $35 per year gives you two subscriber-only podcasts, a marking the roll coffee cup and the option to ask questions of our guests. Just go to Substack and search for Marking the Roll. The link is also on the episode notes wherever you get your podcasts. And, and, and teachers need behaviour policies that are going to back them up um, and um, that are going to be possible to, to follow. Um, so will the Principals Council actually look to revise this behaviour or the, the you know, inclusive education policy? We've been working with the department over a number of years now to try and get improvements and modifications to to that policy, um, and, and it's in a much better state than it was. But we need more. We need to make sure that our schools and our classrooms are disciplined, that they are calm, that they are safe. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, two teachers, uh, not principals, actually, have contacted me and said. Um, that when they defended themselves from attacks by student, one attack was with fists, the other one with a, was with a chair, um, their employer... Now, they didn't make it clear whether they were uh, really um, meaning principal or the Department of Education, said they didn't act properly and received no support. I would imagine that would have been a departmental comment. Um, and one of the teachers resigned over it. Can a teacher defend themselves... And is there any training for it? Before answering that, Phil, I just want to say that it's difficult to comment on specific cases without knowing the full story. But in, in short, yes, a teacher can can defend themselves if they're being attacked. In fact, it's an expectation that if a student is being attacked by another student or a group of students, that the teachers should and can intervene if it is safe to do so and in a way which uses the minimum amount of force or restraint. Um, so it's really important to be clear on that, uh, as well as the changes to suspension policy and, and the um, broader behaviour. There's a new um, restrictive practices framework, which we're currently in the familiarisation 
period with. It, it is possible, as I say, minimal uh, force or minimal restraint, and only if necessary. Sometimes it's best to remove yourself or other people, if you can, from that situation rather than become physically involved yourself. There is training. Uh, there's been a number of um, training available for staff over an extended period of time. It's problem with these types of training, Phil, is that they're often not rolled out consistently or not rolled out across um, enough of the staff to have impact. And, and critical to any of these tra these training packages is training as many staff as possible, but then reviewing that training on a regular basis. We've got a significant turnover of staff in our schools, so you can't just do the training once, tick that box, and then forget about it. Now, look, this is the question that's not in the original list. When I was teaching, there was lots of sport for the boys, uh, competitive sport. As a matter of fact, you had to play competitive sport when I was a kid. Um, and that, I think, certainly for my friends, and I got a lot of that mischief out of our system um, by playing rugby or cricket or whatever it was, uh, there probably isn't as much sport in schools, especially in primary schools, now do you think adding more sport into the curriculum would, would alleviate some of this violence? It's a good question. It's, it's certainly be interesting to have a look at um, if there's any research around this. Uh, several years ago in Canada on a study fellowship and we visited uh, some schools in British Columbia where they'd, um, they'd actually done away with detention. We were talking about detention rooms earlier on. But what they replaced it with was... Um, the gym. Uh, so students who are unsettled in class wouldn't necessarily be held behind after class. They'd be referred to the gym uh, during their, their uh, morning tea, their recess or their lunch breaks. And in, in a lot of cases, what that school was reporting was that students would self-refer themselves to the gym and that the afternoon lessons yeah. was actually their quietest time of the day. And that that's sort of the inverse of what we usually yeah. see in our schools, where after lunch, everyone's sort of a bit hyped up. They're a bit unsettled. They're hanging out for that final bell to go. And that, that can be the time when you get a lot of conflict and a lot of um, a lot of problems, misbehaviour in class. So there's some work done in that space, but yeah. I don't know that there's a, been enough serious research done around the benefits of physical activity i think it's an area that we need to be looking at a whole range of options uh to, again yep. to be proactive and pre be preventative rather than wait for the blow-up to occur and then respond to it yeah yeah look one of my other hats i wear as a neuroscience educator and um, in schools, teaching teachers about the learning brain. And what you said about the exercise and then they go back in the afternoon and they were far better, uh, it's because if they're doing a repetitive exercise, it puts their brain down into a, a zone called theta, which is a far more relaxed brain zone. Um, and that, that is the learning zone as well. So that's when a, a kid can actually take in information. Um, so exercise and getting that out is really so important. Um, Craig, in the USA, security guards are in nearly every school. Can you see a time when that would happen in Australian schools? I hope not. Uh, we do have it already happening in isolated circumstances. It's usually where there's a threat of external aggressors entering the school, you know, community violence, gang violence, that type of thing. And it's more about keeping those things out rather than uh, policing student behaviour within the school gates. Uh, certainly 
something that we don't really want to see here because uh, security fences uh, have become the norm now for um, unfortunately a lot of our schools. Anything like that which makes the school less welcoming, more like a prison, uh, can actually have a perverse effect of encouraging misbehaviour. Uh, I, I think we really need to be looking at the things that we've been talking about throughout this this conversation around what can we do to address the root causes of misbehaviour or violence or aggressive behaviour. Let's try and address that rather than respond in that negative way. Now, in some UK schools, um, teachers must wear body cams to record any physical or verbal violence. You know, it's just the little cameras that sit on the on the on the shirt or something and then footage is shown to parents to prove that that you know johnny or julie did something wrong um and they can also be used to to show the police the footage could these be an alternative look that they, they could again I'd, I'd see that as being a, a last resort um you know, I'd like to see us exploring other options before we we went down that pathway what i'm Having said that, though, Phil, I must say that there have been times when the footage that students have recorded on their mobile phones has come in very handy, uh, whether it's been a fight or aggressive behaviour or misbehaviour in, in, in classrooms. Mm. It can be really useful to have that material on hand to show to parents or the police. Now, look, look, finally, Craig, the, the, the mental health of teachers and principals is, is at an all-time low, and teachers told me that last year was their worst ever year of teaching and this is some teachers who'd had 20 or 30 years experience what what could state education departments do to address this mental health issue and stop the exodus of teachers from the job mm. it's absolutely critical and i'd agree with that summation uh, i've not seen teacher morale as low as it it has been in the last period of time there's a bit of an assumption at the moment that that there really is a level playing field and, and there are common aspirations. Every every child wants to come to school and wants to learn. Every parent will support the, the school. Unfortunately, this simply isn't true. Not all of our parents and families are effective parents. They don't know how, in some cases, that the behaviours of their children are so complex that they struggle with them. Not all of our families experience a good education or even sound and regular employment. So it's really incumbent upon us to acknowledge the significance of that equity gap has, the impact that it has on our students and our families. And we've really got to do something as a society to address that if we want to address some of these other things that we've been talking about. We've got to um, strengthen the authority of principals to manage their schools. It's as simple as that. We can't continually undermine the authority of the adult in the room, you know, the professional, uh, in terms of expectations, consequences, their version of events even. We, uh, we've, we've started to question every decision that every educator makes. We've got to allow teachers to teach, principals to lead. And we've got to back them in. And sometimes that means, you know what, I'm sorry, Mr. or Mrs. Smith, uh, your child has done the wrong thing. I know that you don't agree with me, but I'm the principal, I'm the teacher. That's the way it is. And there is going to be a consequence for that behaviour. It sounds harsh, but we need to trust in our professionals to wield that authority 
in a responsible and fair and non-discriminatory manner. And that's what most of our teachers and principals do pretty much all of the time. And that was Craig Peterson, the president of the Secondary School Principals Council. He's located in New South Wales, but what he had to say um, would be resonating in all states and probably in all countries. I welcome your feedback and your contribution on this issue, and you can do that via going to Marking the Role on Substack, and you can add your comments there. Um, and um, we'd certainly welcome those. You can also email me directly, phil at markingtherole.com.au. I had mentioned about the benefits of exercise uh, for students, um, and there's a great book on that called Spark by Dr. John Rayty, and it talks about the research in America, um, especially with kids, troubled kids, kids who are causing problems but if you insert exercise routine especially repetitive exercise a lot of it seems to stop you've been listening to marking the roll my name's phil dye i'll see you again soon (laughs) 